Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 76, air date November 14th, 2015. Jessica, <laughs> who's going to tell us how to find that balance because you're working on this. You've, you've developed um, the Future of Research Symposia. You're talking about um, how to teach graduate students and postdocs to have a more successful future, bridging these types of gaps, addressing these questions. So I was hoping, Jessica, you could tell us a little bit more about the Future of Research Symposia. You've had two now, I believe. Two in Boston. Two in Boston. And uh, so we'd love to hear about that and, and your ideas about uh, addressing some of these issues. Well, thank you so much, Rudy. I mean, part of the, the motivation for the Future of <coughs> Research Symposia, which are really these grassroots organized meetings to bring junior scientists, early career researchers, together with other stakeholders in the research enterprise to try to understand how we can produce more efficient science. And so I'm so grateful to you for inviting uh, some early career representation here today. Um, we as early career scientists, postdocs, grad students, are of course incredibly troubled by these very issues that I'm hearing now. The conflict between um, what we feel that we need to do in order to keep doing what we love um, and keep trying to promote science. And um, also the, the need to make that science all the things that, that we want it to be, that is creative, collaborative, open, and for the public good. Um, the fact of the matter is that the environment that we're in um, is extremely competitive. Uh, and there's two aspects to that. Uh, first of all, about half of grad students entering uh, their graduate school career, this is from research by Henry Sauerman, Michael Roach, um, have the intention of continuing in academic research, uh, yet less than 10% of them are going to become tenure-track faculty. And so this disconnect between the intention of students entering uh, and the reality, um, that's not to say that, that their PhDs can't provide incredible benefit you know, in industry, and indeed we should be thinking about going into those those realms. However, we aren't necessarily always given the opportunity to explore and develop the skills that we need to apply our training outside. Um, and whether that is through industry, uh, through partnerships with industry, or through developing skills like entrepreneurship or communication. Um, there's a bit of, a, I think, a, a conflict where in graduate school and postdoc, so often uh, trainees are doing uh, just research. And so this is a really great way of training researchers, but it may not be equipping uh, students and postdocs with the skills that they're going to need um, in, in the, the broader world. And um, the, the second side of this coin is really this issue of how, um, how driven people are to continue in, in discovery. And we have this sort of uh, exponential growth model in biomedical research where we have a PI training many students and many postdocs. And this is really not, I think, sustainable, especially during a period now where uh, NIH funding is not growing. And so this leads to behaviors that are not productive for science. This is, I think, hurting science by the tendency for people to try to get that high impact paper by concealing data, uh, not being open about uh, their, their findings, not sharing, not collaborating. Um, and these are all things that I think every idealistic student going into science, um, you know, from where, wherever they come from, wants to do. Uh, and, and I have known so many brilliant people who have chosen to leave because they find that the reality of research is not this dream. And so we, as a group of postdocs in Boston, uh, together with uh, groups in, in Chicago and the Bay Area and in New York, want to 
um, figure out some way. Uh, we, we would love to, to, to change this and love to make research better and more efficient for everyone. Well, that's, you, you know, you, you talk about the high impact paper and I know so many of my own trainees, um, I'm telling them, publish your data. Um, you don't have to shoot for nature or cell. Yeah. But, you know, about half of them would rather wait, you know, three to five years going for that cell paper or nature paper. And very often, just because of the way the papers get reviewed, you don't get it in cell or nature. Yeah. And you, you still publish it in a high impact journal, but you've spent five years without a publication. You know, finding that balance, I mean, do we need ways to better teach students and postdocs about finding balance of publishing medium impact papers while saving it up for the high impact paper so that you know, they, get, they, they share their data more readily. Do you talk about that in your symposium? Yes, I mean, I think the, the, the issue of publication is really important. Um, and, and of course, publication, is, as you're discussing now, is kind of this primary currency uh, for people who want to maintain a career in science, right? And so um, I, I think that the problem is that even though there are so many of us, myself included, who would love to just throw all of our data on the web freely open, you know, without any, um, any hindrances. Um, this is not, we, we feel that we must play by rules that exist. Rules that we don't like, rules that we would like to change, but things that, that we are kind of bound by. Um, and so it is, uh, it's very challenging as an individual actor to make changes, especially when um, uh, that scientist is in a vulnerable position. And I think it becomes even more challenging, um, you know, if you're coming from an institution that is not, um, you know, so fancy, or if you have a, a background that is otherwise disadvantaged. And so I think these forces are really um, pushing out a large fraction of our talent pool. Um, and, I, you know, I would love to change it, but I think the root of the problem is the intense competition and the number of uh, the structure of the workforce, um, driving people to, to um, look for any way of gaining an advantage over others instead of working together. Right. Well, we'll get back to this. So, um, Keith, you as Vice Chancellor of Research at UCSF, I know you spend a lot of time thinking exactly about these issues about how to train your graduate students, your postdocs for, for research in this century, dealing with these, this hyper-competitive environment we're in, measuring team science versus individual science. Um, it would be, be wonderful if you could share with us your views of what do you tell your own uh, graduate students and postdocs at UCSF? What's the advice you give them? Great. Um, so first of all, I, I should say that, that uh, Jessica's going to come after me because I've trained 100 <laughs> students and postdocs in my lab. Um, uh, so um, sorry about that. But, um, uh, I think that, that these issues uh, of uh, sort of forces of uh, policy and tradition, uh, especially, maybe especially within academia actually, um, are, are things that really need to be addressed directly. Um, in, 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 and I hope that as this session proceeds that we'll actually dig into some of those in some detail. What I'd like to start with is thinking about this, the, the topic of redefining discovery in the 21st century and thinking about the scientific drivers that I think should um, uh, 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 really promote institutions kind of taking a step back and asking themselves, what are we doing, what are we actually training our students and postdocs 
to, to do? What, will, what do they need to have in their pocket to succeed in the 21st century biomedical research uh, endeavor? Um, and I would wager that if we did that, uh, it would be sort of an embarrassing exercise <laughs> and that we would discover that we haven't, we, we remained stuck in a, in a, a training mode that is no longer relevant for research uh, today or certainly tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, uh, and, and that in doing, allowing that to happen, we've extended the training periods in ways that are costly, not only to us as investigators, but very costly to the trainees. Um, we're burning up their, their most uh, creative uh, periods at a time when they, uh, keeping them in training when they could be out working uh, uh, independently and so forth. Um, so I hope we, we, we can dig further into that. But let me just start by, let me just comment in, in this phase by talking about three changes, uh, scientific changes, that I think uh, should um, have us thinking hard about the way that we, things that we, ways that we train and the things that we should be talking to our trainees about. Um, uh, first is that, that biology and biomedical research is, has undergone, or is in some places is undergoing, a very dramatic transition from being a descriptive observational endeavor from which we've learned an enormous amount, I might add, uh, to a quantitative one. And there are lots of scientists from my generation, I would, I would venture, that um, uh, are doing biology because they wanted to do science but didn't want to do math. <laughs> um, and that we're in a different world now. And so some of the training that changes that we need to make at the scientific level are recognition of that and that we need to have uh, all of our trainees capable of asking, of, of uh, understanding statistics, mm -hmm. of being able to ask and answer questions with computers, uh, being able to look at systems-wide problems and drilling all the way down to reduction of science um, in quantitative fashion. The second is, is, has been, as you mentioned in the introduction, Rudy, and that is uh, uh, teams. That is that the best science going forward is going to be done not by individuals, but by teams of scientists who actually have bring different expertise to the table. Uh, this has lots of implications, but I'll just, let me just mention one. And that is that when, it, traditionally, um, if your name appeared on a paper, you were responsible, you should have been responsible for every single piece of data in that paper. Um, and actually, we've passed that era, interestingly enough, so that we will increasingly be um, uh, involved in teams of researchers who know very different things, mm -hmm. and that there will be people, on, authors on paper, who don't know how to turn on the machine that gathers some of the data, you know, or maybe even not, wouldn't even recognize the machine <laughs> that gathers some of the data that are in the paper, right? So this means team building must be done carefully and thoughtfully and with a lot of trust. Um, and so there's this whole, whole social dynamic aspect that's going to go into doing the best science going forward. And so team building is, is something that I think is going to be really essential. And then the last scientific piece is, is also a big change. And we used to train our students to design experiments in which there's only one variable and it's the one you're testing, right? And, and um, that era has also gone by. And so, so, this, so I'll just want this under the notion of robustness. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are now, we, we, science has advanced, we should be celebrating this, that science has advanced to the point 
that we can ask and answer questions in systems and experimental approaches that are vastly more complex than, being able, than having one variable that's under investigation. This has exploded recently in this whole question of reproducibility, right? Um, uh, but in fact, what it really means, so I, I characterize this as the Donald Rumsfeld problem, uh, which is that there, are, that there are unknown unknowns that are a vast number of them that are embedded in every experiment we do in these complicated systems. And we need first to acknowledge that and be thinking about how to move forward in our endeavor, mm -hmm. knowing that there's lots of things that we're not testing in our systems. No reviewer would ask, would read a paper and, and send back a review that said, have you tried uh, doing these experiments at a tenth of a degree warmer? <laughs> or starting your experiments at 2.30 in the afternoon instead of nine in the morning? but there are variables embedded in right. our systems that which those could be profoundly important. So those three scientific changes, I think, should have us stepping back and driving some changes in the ways that we train our scientists going forward, because there are things that they need to be able to become very facile with and, and accommodate the ways that they do their studies and the ways they talk about them to others that, that have big implications for being able to move science forward. Thank you. You know, you bring out a great point, which is building out the team of different disciplines and different investigators, um, but also in attacking the problem, bringing in teams of different proteins and genes and networks and broadening out from single molecules to systems, broadening out from single investigators and single disciplines to multidisciplinary approaches. I think that's a great theme to, that we can continue on. Um, as we you know, talk more. And as you do things like this, you know, as, you, as you start broadening into giant systems, it is so important at that point to bring in your other two points, a quantitative approach, good statistics, and robustness, because it's very easy to go awry when you're trying to, when you, when you, if your model becomes too heuristic, it's very easy to lose the relevance back to the, the initial question, or especially to translating that to helping humankind with free therapy. So we'll come, definitely come back to that, thank you. Um, so last but not least, Murray, bringing us the, the pharma view. You're, you're, you've been um, very actively thinking about how can we better bridge uh, what's done in pharma and at the clinical end with basic sciences. Um, we'd love to get your thoughts on that. And also, are we focusing too much on disease? And should we be focusing more in, to create that bridge on pathways and platforms as opposed to just individual diseases as we think about you know, pharma, academic, um, collaborations. Great, so, thank you very much. Yes. Well, I'm delighted to be here to work with Faster Cures because one of my motivations is getting our medicines to patients faster than we currently do. I mean, currently the timelines really aren't great. It takes 10 years to develop a medicine. It costs over 2.6 billion. And clearly for the sake of patients, we need to get better at doing this. One theme that's clearly came out today is collaboration. So pharma can't do it on its own. In fact, it doesn't want to do it on its own. Probably half the medicines that GSK develop are internal, but the other half are to do with partnerships. And partnerships, to me, is vital. And I think it comes back to the point about what you bring to the table. And we can bring lots of things to the table in terms of understanding chemistry, understanding um, translation. 
And I want two areas to talk about collaboration. One is with, we do do a lot of work with institutes like um, the Francis Crick Institutes where they can bring ideas around uh, genomics. We can bring various hits and targets. Um, we work with the European Bioinformatic Institute. Um, so we do work with big institutes and the collaboration is great because you put all ideas on the table. Sometimes it's best to forget your background and just come to the table and to discuss ideas. But I want to pick up something that Keith said, because Pharma is interested in any ideas and lots of ideas. And it's also interested in working with um, PIs that may be struggling. And what we've recently set up is um, what we call academic um, discovery performance units. So within our own company, we've got little discovery performance units. And some of them have 10 people, some have 40 people. And we certainly know once you've got a critical mass, you want people to work together. But the, we've noticed that a lot of academics have got a good idea and they may understand the biology, but they don't understand the chemistry. So they don't know how to um, you know, make a molecule. They don't understand finances. So how do they go from their biological idea to develop a medicine? Now, what I think's happened in the past, people have been going around looking for a great idea, spend a large amount of money, but not think of the gap in between. And I think one way to solve the gap in between is start um, doing it in small steps. So with some of these individual PIs, we've set up a risk and reward sharing. So you go by various milestones. So what's your hypothesis? My hypothesis might be that I think this is an important target. Okay, next stage, can you actually make a molecule? Uh, can you actually get the chemistry right? Okay, once you've got the chemistry, how do you test it preclinically? So this may seem obvious, but I think it's important to go together, sharing the risk, sharing the reward, going by milestones, and that's been far more productive than going around looking for um, the needle in the haystack. And coming back to a little bit about the translation science into medicines, I want to give an example in, a lot of examples are used in oncology, but I want to give an example in respiratory medicine, where you've got to be more precise and you've got to understand the biology. And I want to take um, interleukin-5 and an antibody we've got against that. So we know um, that by targeting that, we will lower eosinophils. And you think, well, lowering eosinophils may be important in asthma. And the first study we did with IL-5, we took people with mild and moderate asthma. We looked for the standard endpoint of FEV1 suggesting improved lung function. No effect. We nearly walked away from this, apart from some bright scientists in the lab said, well, I've looked at the data and I know I'm not really encouraged to do post-hoc analysis, but I did. And I found out the people who did best with IL-5 were the people who had really high eosinophil levels. And maybe we're going too broad. And I think one mistake Big Pharma has done in the past is it's tried to go for big wins. Or oh, let's find the answer to asthma or Alzheimer's. And I think it's better to be more specific. So with this example, we said, well, okay, it does seem to work in people with high eosinophils. And it may be an inflammatory component. So instead of looking at the classical endpoint of FEV1, let's look for exacerbations. And let's only give this drug to people with severe asthma with high eosinophils. Now, some of our marketing colleagues say, well, that's no good. You know, you're going narrow and narrow. And I said, no, the science is driving us there. And that if we go there, we will get the most clinical benefit for the patients. So we 
deliberately targeted people with severe asthma who are not controlled on high dose severe steroids, who are going into hospital with um, exacerbations and really have high morbidity and high mortality. By targeting those patients, we actually showed a very good response in the severe end, reducing exacerbations, reducing morbidity and mortality. So by being specific to the target, we're able to help specific people improve their quality of life. So this is where I think rather than thinking broad, being more specific has clear benefits. But I really want to end is, I think what Shiva, what you started with and set the tone is, we should not be biased about um, perceptions. People have myths and ideas. I think no matter whether you come from pharma, a small science background, what age you are, if you're motivated and have good ideas, we need to find ways of translating that idea into medicine.